Okay, well, we're going to um, still be in Ephesians. And we're going to read uh, chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 through 21. <clears throat> and, of course, this is we're still in the prayer that he prays for the Ephesians having already declared to them salvation uh, complete perfect summed up in Christ he's now praying for the soul to be enlightened for their eyes to be open to the seeing the reality of this salvation so he says that the eyes of your understanding be being enlightened that you might know what is the hope of his calling we've talked about that the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality power might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come and as I was reading those things, uh, today we're going to focus mostly on the the this uh, power that has been wrought in Christ, this working that God wrought in Christ in the raising up from the dead, and how we are partakers of the the exceeding greatness of that power. And it's a wonderful thing, and it'll it'll beautifully you know as far as what i've seen it beautifully you know i hate to use the term piggybacks off of the previous statement about the glorious the glory of his inheritance in the saints when we were talking about that we we were showing that the real sustaining and securing part of his inheritance is that it is his inheritance in the saints. It belongs to him first. It belongs to him. It's his. Amen. And that's what secures it. Not because God, you know, had pity on us and gave us an inheritance too. It was that God secured the whole thing in bringing it into the heir to whom it belonged. He gave it all to him and said, all that I am all that I have, everything I determined, everything I purposed is yours, belongs to you. And what that does is it secures it into an eternal reality. It secures it as his possession. Okay? And if it's secured in his possession, what that means is there's no there's no diminishing of it at all. It can't be taken away it can't be lessened it can't be anything it's his first and then the beauty of the grace of god is that we what belongs to him first as the heir of all things is bestowed to us it's given to us as a gift of mercy it is given to us as his gift to us he lives in us as the heir as the possessor of all things. And because Amen. I'm the place he inhabits, my soul that inhabits him, that is his habitation, 
partakes of all the fullness he possesses. And that soul is in, here's the beautiful part of it, that soul is in no way responsible for the for the anything of that inheritance <laughs> it's not responsible to keep it or to qualify for it or to be good enough for it because i'm not the one to whom it belongs i'm not the heir you're not the heir christ in us is the heir it's solely and securely anchored in him and therefore it's a gift to us that's that's a beautiful thing i can't i can't even say yeah. it i can't say it well enough to give real just to explain how how big that is i wish i could uh but you know god can and you know that's the whole point paul's making as big as this is god has to open your eyes to see it as great as this is paul can't preach it and if Paul couldn't preach it to them and make them comprehend it, Raven Bird certainly can't. So we have to give it over to God and say, you show me how great this is. Show me how good it is that it's his possession and not mine. You see, having, you know, having nothing of my own, that's the same thing. When it's found in him having nothing of my own, that's the same thing as this inheritance, all the spiritual blessings I have are not mine. They are his, first and foremost. They are him, first and foremost. And they are, by the grace of God, provided and imputed and bestowed to my soul as a work of mercy. And that's how great this is, that it is something that was certain and secure before it ever came to me. Before it ever, you know, before I was even a part of this situation because I'm born again, it was already certain and secured because it was him and it was in him and it was his possession. And, you know, I could, I could belabor that and just keep saying those words forever. But to me, that's such a big thing. And it, it's such an immense, uh, an immense thing um, that I, I wish I wish more of us understood it <laughs> I really do you know I wish I wish more people really understood what that means and how beautiful that is to know that it doesn't belong to us and to realize that that's what makes it so good and that's what makes it so sure that it's not in my hands, so I can't drop it. You know, because if it was in my hands for me to keep it, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to drop it. <laughs> I drop the ball every time it's in my hands. And that's the problem. Most Christians think it's in their hands. And most people think they're capable of dropping that ball because someone's told them that. And that's the sad part. Someone's told them that God gave them a ball and said, run with it. And they, you know, and most, most Christians are at least honest enough to realize I can't, I can't run with that. I can't carry that ball. That ball's too weighty for me. It's too precious for me. And I've known people who don't even understand a, 
just a fragment of the preciousness of this gift and still would say that. It's too precious for me. It's too good for me. I don't deserve this. Well, that's true. You don't. But that's the good news. You know, when we were without strength, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. That That's a pretty good deal. <laughs> you know, uh, that's a that's big that's big man that that means that the whole thing has always been in his hands and never has been in mine and it never changes that never stops being the case so you know again we stay there forever but i just want us to at least hearing those words grasp that put it before the lord let him you know because that's the whole journey of, of the seeing of christ and this prayer being answered is God opening our eyes to the exceeding greatness of his power to us. And if you don't understand by now, so many people are waiting for an, a manifestation of that salvation. Your salvation is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. There is no greater exhibition of his power. There never will be. The greatest exhibition of his power is to bring a soul from death to life and make that soul that was dead in sin a partaker of his victory over death and sin and corruption. That's what he's done. We have become partakers of a victory wrought of God, the full manifestation of his mighty power in the raising up of Christ from the dead. My soul becomes a partaker where he becomes the resurrection and the life of my soul. Amen. And that's such a great reality. This is put into it. And he says, this is what you must see by the power of God. This is not something I can make you and convince you of. This is too great. And that's why he uses all these words that seems like hyperbolic language. I mean, exceeding greatness of his power and the working of his mighty power and all these words that people would say, oh, he's just, you know, using exaggerated language. Well, yes, he is, but he's doing so because he understands just how great this is and that it's beyond human eloquence to be able to convey it. It is... It is something that the eloquence of the Spirit has to convey to your soul. He has to make it known by showing you this one that God raised from the dead as a present and resident life and power that fulfills reality, brings reality in your soul, and keeps your soul secured in that reality, again, because it's not of you but of him. He's the one who does this. And... So his desire for us to see Christ is based upon how great it is. And when, when we read these verses too, we have these things we're going through when we're teaching them as lessons, like the inheritance and the glory or the hope to which we've been called and the inheritance. And now we have the, uh, the, the, the power, the, exceeding greatness of his power that's toward us in the that that he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead we're going to see all we're going to put some verses together in this that maybe you hadn't thought of in relation to these verses but we have to understand he's not talking about three separate distinct uh 
isolated aspects of salvation. He's speaking of salvation. He's just pointing out particular parts of it. Okay, He's not saying this is it. He's saying this is, you know, these are realities of salvation. I want you to see this salvation. I want you to understand that all of this was God's power to you. God's exertion of his might towards you. Now they're, you know, expressed in terms of plurality, but he's describing the abounding work of grace that is effectual in the person of Christ. And as we as before we go any further, I do there is a commentary that I want to read. And it was one I I never knew I would read something that so almost perfectly said uh, by someone, but uh, this is from John Calvin, and he wrote this commentary about these verses, and I like it. To me, it's a much more salvation, grace, Christ-centered view of this than how a lot of people have taken this into the future and how they've done that, which we'll read another commentary that does that, is beyond me. But people do it because um, this whole power toward us is, you know, people don't think this has happened because they look at themselves. They see themselves. They say, oh, there's no way. That, that's true. So let me read his commentary and we'll talk about it in just a second. He says, foolish men imagine that the language used by Paul is absurdly hyperbolic, exaggerated. But people who are engaged and understand the inward corruption of men have no difficulty perceiving that these words are not at all used beyond what is perfectly just. As the importance of the subject cannot be too strongly expressed, so our unbelief and ingratitude led Paul to employ this glowing, exaggerated sounding language. We never form, here's these words, we never form an adequate conception of the treasure that God has revealed to us in his gospel. Or if we do, we cannot persuade ourselves that it is, it is possible for us to do so or for it to be true because we perceive nothing in ourselves that corresponds to that truth but we see everything in the reverse of that truth. Paul object, Paul's object, therefore, was not only to impress the Ephesians with the deep sense of the value of the divine grace of God, but also to give them an exalted view of the glory of the kingdom of Christ, that they may not be cast down by a view of their own unworthiness, he exhorts them to consider the power of God. As if he had said, your regeneration, your new birth, was no ordinary work, but was an astounding exhibition of his ultimate power. Mm. Now, I love that. Mm -hmm. And the, again, if we were to say this, and we say, and, you know, and, and this is what I'm saying in this lesson. This salvation, this work of God by the grace of God in our soul, the work of new birth or regeneration, as he says here, 
is the most perfect and most abounding exhibition of his power that's ever, ever happened. We can look at all the things we read of in the scripture, and they're mighty, huge exhibitions of God. What God did when he raised up Christ from the dead, which is the very means of our salvation, and we'll read that in a moment, which is how he's tying all this together. That is the greatest exhibition of God's power. To bring about a new creation defined in a perfect man. To bring about a new kingdom headed in a perfect man. To bring about righteousness bring about life that death cannot conquer, that has conquered death, to bring about righteousness in its most perfect form, now without any testimony needed. He has done this in the raising up of this one and saying, this is it. This is the end of it all. This is my son. That, there was, John's baptism was merely a testimony of this. The ultimate end of it was right there in the resurrection. And that's the one who brings all things into perfection, into spiritual substance. And that's the one that God gives to our soul and makes our soul the dwelling place of the victor himself. The one who, has, who reigns victorious over sin, death, and all other yeah. things. That's, that's the power he's exerted here. And because, again, as he says in this commentary, we look at ourselves, we see the weakness, we see the things that are totally contrary to such a victory. We see the things of unworthiness in ourselves, and guess what? Yes, you are. You are. You are weak, you're unworthy, no doubt about it. But the beauty of it is in the midst of it. God has provided his son to be in us what we could not be he has provided life to the soul that was dead righteousness is sinfulness he has brought a total change of the heart and made it now united to the one he has raised since then you are risen with christ there is the union the the, the soul being joined to the spirit of life himself, bringing that soul into, <clears throat> uh, let's, it, I, just, I say participation, making that soul a recipient and a participator in all that he is. There is nothing. That's why at the end of this chapter one, how's he, how's he going to end it? The next things up after the verses we just read. The next thing is he's going to declare he is the head of his body. Why? Because that head determines what that body has. That, that head determines everything with regard to that body. If that head is the victor over all things, that body shares in that victory. If he is without sin, that body shares in that, real, that state. Amen. And that's the thing the body of Christ must come to see. Or, as Paul will say, we must grow up into the head in all things. These are the all things bestowed by the grace of God. We must grow up into the head in all things. What's that mean? Grow up into the point where we see that those all things are defined in the head and not the body. 
they're defining the head himself. And because they're defining the head, they become the secured possession of the body because they are one. They're joined to him, found in him. He's the source of their identity and all else in the sight of God. See, this is why the soul must see the reality God beholds. Because if not, we're going to still be focused and occupied, or as he says, obsessed and cast down with our own unworthiness, with our own weaknesses. And we're going to think the whole work of God is to fix our weaknesses and to fix our unworthiness and to fix our problems and to fix how bad we are. When the fact is he was never, it was never God's intent to fix men. It was God's intent to bring all men into the perfection of one man so that they may be found in him, known of God by him, and that's the simple gospel. And in this whole thing, what Paul is setting out in Ephesians 1 here, at the end of chapter 1, he's setting forth a man standing victorious over death. This is the power exerted in the raising up of him from the dead over all principalities and powers. He is a man standing victorious over death, sin, corruption, calling and inviting all who are yet dead in their sins and condemned unto himself to receive him as a total victory over power, over the power and dominion of death under which they abide. That's the victory that we have partaken of in Christ. That's the victory that truly overcomes the world, as he says, even our faith. That means believing in him, in his sufficiency, setting our trust in his allness. That's the victory that overcomes the world. Because now we're found in the one or the ones found in us who has overcome the world, who has overcome sin, who has overcome death. And I'm talking about sin and death as a state of being, not as things we do so the the whole point is here's this man who now has total dominion over death and sin because he's defeated it once and for all and he calls the souls of men out of the power and grip of the sin and the headship of adam so that he can bring them under his own headship where that body is now defined by the fullness of of him that feels all. That's the end of chapter 1 of Ephesians. That's why we must have the eyes of our heart open. That's why the soul must behold Jesus. Because that type of fullness is... There are no words to express it. I don't care how hyperbolic the words sound. There's not enough... There are not enough words in the language of men to describe how great it is. And that's why God has to show you the face of the one who is the greatness of it. And then the answer will come. Then the full the full spectrum of the beauty of it will appear when his face appears and you see reality as it has and always shall be defined. And then your soul can rest in it, rejoice in it. And you can live as his body, not try to be the head. You can live 
as his body that is filled with the fullness of him, that partakes of a source that is not of you, that lives because the life of one man courses through you. That's, that's salvation. That's regeneration. And again, that was the most perfect, ultimate exhibition of God's power. It was the victory of all victories wrought of God in him. And it's that victory we partake of because he abides in us. That is, that is why it can be said, bitter and sweet water can't, can't be found in the same place. The tree cannot have bad and good fruit. Religion will tell you it's possible. The truth tells you it's not. Because if he's present, everything that he's present in bears the fruit that he is. It can't have two divergent, contrasting ends or, or manifestations or expressions. That can't happen. When he's in it, he rules it. When he's in it, he determines everything about it. You see, that's the victory we're talking about. And to me, that's an, that's an immense thing. That's huge. And... You know, that's what he's that's what he's expressing here. And unfortunately, so many divorce these verses from regeneration from from the new birth. I mean, look at here's here's another commentary. This is an Adam Clark commentary about the same verses of what we just read. John Calvin's commentary where he says that, you know, regeneration is being expressed here as not just some ordinary work, but the most astonishing exhibition of the power of God. Listen to what Adam Clark brings it down to me. As the apostle is speaking of the glorious state of believers after they die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, <laughs> he goes on and he says, that's true, but the true power, the surpassing power, is to be understood of that might which is to be exerted in the raising of the body on the last day, which is the body uh, of believers from the dead, from their graves. Basically saying that that was a down payment <laughs> for my resurrection. God raising him up was saying, hey, Raven will surely raise up too. Do you see how that brought it down to nothing? It just, yeah. it belittled it. It demeans the whole meaning of it. It brings it, it, it you know, it, it tears it to pieces and says it's nothing. Paul means nothing. And the reason they do that goes back to what Calvin said. They cannot reconcile the exceeding greatness of God's power wrought in the risen Christ when compared to the fragility and the weakness of the vessel in which Christ abides. They have to relish it to some time frame where it may make sense to them, which is way off into the future, where they don't even have to debate it. They don't have to think about it. It's way out there somewhere, one day. 
However, one of the most direct reasons is they have an exalted view of their own unworthiness and they have no view of the greatness of the power of God that has been wrought in Christ and made uh, and exercised in our soul in the person of Christ that lives in it. That's where the soul has the power of God truly exercised in it once and for all in its most ultimate way, Christ in you. And this is the reason that this exertion of God's power in the resurrection is that which the soul must see in all of its glory, all of its sufficiency. Again, if not, our sufficiency will be the sole obsession of, the, of men. And again, God's power is not manifest to change the weaknesses or you know, remedy the insufficiencies of mankind. It was to overcome and override mankind bringing them under the sovereign power and headship of a perfect man, making them the body of that man whose fullness fills that body. And again, we not to belabor this point, but to me, to, we have to appreciate the sufficiency of this salvation, of our great redemption. We must recognize that the power of God has been fully and sufficiently wrought first in the Beloved, raised by the glory of the Father, and bestowing to him all things that belong to him, and as the scriptures say, greatly exalting him. And then the work of God to usward who believe. That's the beauty of that statement. We'll talk about that in a moment. I mean, it's just the mercy and grace of God that that statement can even be uttered. The power of God usward, to usward. It didn't have to turn that direction. It didn't have to come this way. God could have done what he did and been satisfied. But the mercy of God toward the souls he created was that that power would be toward us so that we could be partakers of his goodness, of his divine purpose and will Amen. that's mercy he didn't have to do that and most people discount that and just think hey you know that's that's what he what he did no that's the mercy of god man you had you you didn't have that coming at all it never had to be usward never had to be toward us it could have been just god satisfied in God. And that's true. That's first true. And that first had to be true. And that's what makes it so good. It first had to be true that God was just satisfied with God. He was satisfied with himself. He had fulfilled his own plan, fulfilled his own purpose. And then he says, now, come to me. All you who are dead, come to me. And I'll give you life. Man, what, what grace. Amen. So, um, this, is, this is basically mirrored in Colossians chapter 2, but he, he says it in a different way, so let's read those verses. And then we're going to bring a few other verses into this before we stop. Um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. And that'll correspond, if we get to it, we'll try to get to Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 6. Uh, in the first verses of that 
but in Colossians 2.12, it says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him, through the faith, here's the word, through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead, and you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcised scission of your flesh, he hath quickened together with him, having forgiven all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, having spoiled principalities. Here's the here's more of that exertion of his power and raising him up, giving him a name above all names, far above all principalities and power. Same thing as said in Ephesians 1. Having spoiled principalities and powers, made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And then, based upon that, he'll say to them, let no man therefore judge you in meat and drink, or in respect of a holy day or new moon, or Sabbath days. Meaning, this is the work that God's wrought in you. Don't let man bring you back under the power that God's delivered you from and say, now you need these things. Now you need meats and drinks, touch not, taste not, handle not. Why? Because those things, yes, they were a shadow of the reality that was coming Christ, but those things were valid only, only, in the time where the souls of men were under the power of sin and death. Because under that system, under that moment in time, all men were dead in sin. Therefore, God created a law that promised the salvation, and he kept them under a testimony of that salvation, and he did so. But now that that salvation has come, do not let any man bring you back under that which foreshadowed that testimony come as those who are found in him as those who are risen with him which is just what he said here set your affection above for what that christ who is your life would appear that the one who has operated such a great operation brought about such a such a liberation brought about a true trans, uh, uh, transformation of the soul brought you from death into life and the uh, you know brought you forgiveness of sins he has brought a true circumcision as he also says there in in uh, second corinthians or second second chapter of colossians he will appear if you will look for him. Why? Because you are where he is. And he is found in you. Therein your soul must see who is your life. Your soul must see the glory that you already abide in. And when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. You will be seeing that you have been in the glory of this reality from the moment you are born again. The, 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 the revealing of Christ only makes you cognizant of the reality God has already wrought in what is called here his operation. Now, what's that word mean? The operation of God. If you look at it in the Greek, it's the same word used in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, when it says he wrought in Christ and the term, the working of his mighty power to us who believe. It's the same Greek word. What he wrought in Christ when he raised him 
from the dead and the working of his mighty power to us who believe. It is energia, 1753 in Strong's, and it means an effectual working. A working that is effectual, meaning it has effect. Yeah, Paul, uh, Kenneth Weiss many times when he's, you, when that was in the picture, he would say once and for all, once and for all. That's how effectual it is. It's once and for all. It's done. And it's through the faith, our faith, through faith in the operation of this God who has done such a work. It is faith in his work that he worked in Christ and wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. It's in faith of that where my soul becomes a partaker of that which is perfect and complete because that's what he's just said right above Colossians 2.12. He said, you are complete in him who is the head of all principalities and powers, taking it right back to Ephesians chapter 1. Why is he do it? Why, why can he say that? And why do men miss that? Again, same thing we read earlier. Because men are obsessed with their own insufficiency. Men cannot see beyond them own, their own self. They cannot see beyond the cloak of their own religious guise. And they see that guise is good for a while and then it, then it falls to pieces. After a while, that, that disguise falls down and becomes an exposure of you. When the whole time, God's not called you to be perfect. God's called you to his perfection. God's called you to the perfection of another. He's not called you to be righteous. He's called you to the righteous that belongs to another. And the exercising of his power to usward is that Christ lives in us as that righteousness perfect and complete. The mighty power of God has been wrought in Christ and bestowed to us. Amen. The power exerted by God in Christ, overcoming corruption and death, this first, again, it's important, this power firstly exhibited in Christ being raised from the dead. This is when a new creation comes into being. Again, the resurrection is a big deal. This is when it all comes into being. This is when he's raised up and he is raised and he says, I will take away the first, establish the second. The word establish means to raise up, to stand up. That means when he stood up, the second was established. And in the second, there is perfection. There is spiritual perfection. There is perfect righteousness without sin, salvation without sin. That comes in the second that his resurrection brings about. It is a, a perfect creation. Problem is, most people are looking at this creation and they're trying to see the characteristics of a perfect creation in this one. And they think that's what God's point is. The point of God is not to bring about another Eden. That's not, that's not the point. We're not going back to the garden, right? Men were not filled with the fullness of God in the garden. The whole point is to be brought into heavenly places in Christ. All of that had a testimonial point. The point is fulfilled in tree of life. 
When we partake of Christ, we're partaking of life, the tree of life himself. The only one that God said is good. That's the one. Take it. Eat it. That's the whole point. To have his life abiding in us. Not trying to get him to make us wise like God. Know what God knows. Be like God is. No. To make us partakers of a life that he has set in the midst. And says, take this. Eat this. Anytime. This is yours. I've given it to you as a gift. Does that make sense? Amen. Amen. So what he first exhibited in the raising of Christ becomes the inwardly possessed reality that is imputed to the soul by the presence of the one in whom it was first exhibited and wrought. The one raised is victorious over all things, death, sin, and corruption, is my soul's life. He is the one who lives in me. And if my soul has him living in it, guess what? My soul is also victorious over sin and death. That's what Paul says, right? Reckon ye, your, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God through Christ. My soul partakes of that victory. I don't have one of my own. I'm, you know, Most Christians are still trying to fight and win a victory. No. My soul, at the moment of new birth, becomes a partaker of his victory. And that victory was once and for all. That's what Paul is saying. I want your eyes to be open to this. So that you're not still trying to fight battles. That you're not still trying to be a body without a head. In that part of Colossians, in that part of the rebuke or the warning. Sorry, just dropped my pen. Um... The warning in Colossians that what we just read. Let me go read it. It's about the head and not holding the head. Yeah, it was the next verse. Let no man beguile you of your reward. He says, don't let them... Judge you in meats and drinks, holy days, Sabbath, new moons, shadow of things. Let no man beguile you of the reward in a voluntary humility, worshiping of angels, intruding into the things which he has seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Not holding the head from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increase with the increase of Whose increase? The increase of God. Not yours. Not making you anything. This body, this body, if it is holding to the head, finding its source in the head, turning its affection to the head, will find that that head perfectly nourishes the body with the sufficiency of that it needs. It brings to the body everything that body needs. Everything that body is supposed to possess, that head brings it and 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 supplies it perfectly, fully. This is the supply of the need. This is the true supply of the need by his glory that Paul talks about. 
This is the supply to that need. The body has the supply of all the need by being one with the head. But when we're trying to be something separate from the head, when something is separate from that source, then we get caught up in the touch, touch not, taste not, handle not. The fact that God by his grace made us a body and made him the head of that body, that's the true exercising of this power to usward who believe. You see, there is a settled place of habitation for divine sufficiency. There is a place God, before the foundation of the world, determined that all divine sufficiency and reality would abide. And that's in his Son. That's in Christ. And the very power of God, fully exerted and manifest in that one, but again, the mercy and the grace of God to us word is that this heart is the place of his habitation and that God's heart was so good that all that is in Christ, all that Christ is, all the sufficiency that he embodies and personifies is directed by his mercy to us word who believe. Not to us word who work hard enough to qualify, but to us word who believe. Can you believe it's that simple? Can you believe it's that simple? And my hands don't have to even try to get dirty? Amen. He did this. And he keeps this done. <laughs> Just by being who he is in us. That's all is necessary. In effect, it, it corresponds back to what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption. See, in whom we have it. If we weren't in him who is redemption, who possesses it, we wouldn't have it. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence and this is that wisdom that is talked about in first corinthians 1 which we covered in these verses when he says this is god's wisdom toward us that christ is righteousness our righteousness made unto us righteousness sanctification and redemption that's toward us titus 3 says it this way verse 3 through 7 we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. How did that happen? Because God said, hey, they've done what I've asked. No. Because that's what we were, deceived, disobedient, diverse lusts, pleasures. That's us. That's us. Not qualified for anything. Not something we could say, hey, we deserve this. <coughs> no. The kindness and love of God now appears toward men. Or to, that the love of God toward men had appeared. Not by works of righteousness. 
which we have done. See? We didn't do anything. But according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing or baptism of regeneration, a renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And again, this shows you that we possess by imputation, what we possess is by imputation, has its perfect and comprehensive resonance within the person of Christ, the head of his body, first, foremost, preeminently. And this is why Paul, <coughs> again, will immediately conclude chapter 1 by saying he is the head of this body. He is the head of this body. He is the fullness that fills this body. Now let your soul be open and unveiled to see him. Because it's in the seeing of him that that body will see the absolute exceeding greatness and abundant sufficiency that is found in the head of that body. The body won't have to find a source other than him. Will not even have to think about looking for a source. Because you know what? They'll see that the head is an all-sufficient source. He is all things. And he is all things, and the possessor of all things provides all things. That's salvation. Now, just to tie one more verse. Let me see. I don't know how. Okay, we've got a little bit of time. Um, and this, this should come as no shock uh, when you're reading these things about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 12. I'm going to start in verse 12. We're going to read a few verses. Uh, verse 12 through 17. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also vain. We are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Now, listen how he's saying that. This is not just convincing people that Jesus died and rose again. This is saying, if Christ be not risen, there is no resurrection of the dead. Right? It's not just, if he didn't get up, then he didn't get up, and we're, we're lying to everybody. No, it's saying if he who is the resurrection did not get up, then there is no resurrection. That makes sense? That's a different thing. Amen. Okay? The dead have no hope of living if the life himself has not conquered death. If resurrection life is not powerful enough to conquer death, then there is no resurrection whatsoever. And then he goes on and solidifies that even more. If the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. Why? Because he's the resurrection. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. 
and you are yet in your sins. Now that's exactly what we're seeing expressed in Ephesians. Paul is describing the power of God in its most ultimate exercise. Again, the raising up of one son who has conquered sin and death. So if he's not raised up, then there is no new creation. There is no victory over sin, death. There is condemnation that no man can conquer. But if he be raised, then there, has to, there is now a power sufficient that is overcome death that has created an altogether new kingdom and that calls the souls of men to come and live. Isn't that what Jesus said? Those dead who shall hear the voice of the Son of Man shall live. This is the resurrection. This is the exerting of the power of God. This is salvation. This is not something way off into the distant future. This is the very reality of being born of God, a soul coming to the resurrection and living by him. And in doing so, partaking of this victory that he has won and wrought in the overcoming of sin and death. And therefore, we are no longer our, our, the preaching is not in vain, and our faith is not in vain. Now, let's go down a little further. Second, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to go to verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in what? Glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. There's that power that is exerted by God. Sown a natural body, raise the spiritual body. You see the power and him being the head of a new body, a spiritual body. There's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. So we see the state of what is sown and what is raised. It is raised incorruptible. It is raised full of glory. It is raised in power. That's what God raised in the raising up of Christ. He raised something that is incorruptible, that is full of glory, and that is the ultimate exhibition of his power. And again, take that directly back to Ephesians chapter 1, and we see that might and that power manifested in Jesus being raised. And the one who abides incorruptible, the one who lives as the glory of God perfectly exhibited, the ultimate display of his might, and we see all things of salvation personified in this one who has been raised. And the great transition from death into life, from what, what we'll read in a moment in 1 Corinthians 15, mortality and immortality. It's the same as death and life. From corruption to incorruption. Paul is showing salvation is the power of the resurrection being exercised first in Christ and then in us bringing us from the headship of Adam, who was earthy, the first man of the earth earthy, to the headship of the Lord from heaven himself. This is the power exerted. This is the energy wrought of, this is that energizing work wrought of God that we partake of in salvation. No wonder people push this off into the future because my words right now seem a little weird because we still see us. And we wonder, what is he talking about? There's no immortality. Yes, there is, because incorruption and immortality is his and him. We don't become that. 
we put it on. We put on immortality. We put on incorruption. Paul says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same thing. So it's written, again, the first man was made a living soul. The last Adam, or the yeah, first man Adam was made a quickening spirit. There's that quickening spirit, life-giving, the resurrection. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. Afterward, that which is spirit. First and second again. First man is of the earth, earthy. Second man is the Lord from heaven. Now, verse 52. Here's in a moment. Here's the change. In a moment. Twinkling of an eye. The last trump. What is that? What is that? The last trump. We'll read that in a moment. The dead shall be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed. For the on incorruption. You read that phrase, must put on. You see that? Must put on. Doesn't that sound to you like you must be born again? There's a must to this. There is an absolute must to it. Corruptible must put on incorruption. You must be born again. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality. And we read words like that and we say, when? When is that going to happen? He's not talking about some future state. He's using eschatological prophetic language to show them that the very thing that the prophet said, which this is, all of these words are from the prophet, have come to pass. In the victory wrought of God in Christ and our salvation in Christ. Okay? So he's saying when this happens, when this corruption puts on incorruption and mortal puts on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in what? Victory. As I said, Ephesians 1 is describing to them a victory that God has wrought in Christ over sin, <clears throat> over death, and over corruption. And when that soul is born of God, that's the moment, that's the moment that there is brought to pass in me the saying, death has been swallowed up a victory. My soul becomes a partaker of a victory wrought of God in Christ. Something God has already done in him. It was wrought in him way before I came along. My soul just comes to be a partaker of it the moment I believe. Amen. See? And so when we read things like the last trumpet, the trumpet sound, they shall hear that trumpet and the dead will be raised incorruptible. Look what Jesus says in John 5. We quoted it a while ago. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, I say unto you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. 
There's 1 Corinthians 15. That's the fulfillment. New birth, hearing the voice, coming to him who calls to the souls of those who are dead shall live. And at that moment, corruption puts on incorruption. Mortality puts on immortality. That just means death puts on life. Okay. When we think about immortality, we think of physical, natural bodies living forever. That's not it. It's not the point at all. And so this is what we're seeing described. This is the victory. This is what is exceeding in its greatness that Paul is describing here. It's the whole transition from one man to another, from one creation to another. How great is this? This is the resurrection that was always promised. As, as, as John Calvin says, if we look at it in those terms, that our salvation is the resurrection promised of God, brought to the souls of men, that's a pretty ex pretty huge exhibition of the power of God, don't you think? Amen. Yes. So, you know, we can go on, and there's another place we'll probably start the next one in, but we'll, we'll stop at that one, but... I, I hope I conveyed it to some, some degree, but that's why, again, that's why Paul is so adamantly praying here and using the language he's using to show them, man, this far exceeds anything you have ever known. This far exceeds, this has no natural equivalence. This thing is so great, there is no equivalence. Only God can show you this. Only God can make you know this. And we have to settle ourselves in knowing that that's the case and set our hearts to allow God to do the work only he can do. And that means those who are hearing the gospel and those who are proclaiming it too. We have to settle on the fact we are, we are outside of our zone here, you know, this is not my wheelhouse. I don't have that type of uh, ability. But God does. Mm -hmm. And what God has wrought, first in Christ, now in you, he is pleased to make known and to open the eyes of the soul so that that soul can enjoy unrestrained by natural perception the fullness of what God has provided. So, we'll stop there, guys.